Uh, my name is Ricky Spindler, for those of you who don't know, and um, I'm the lead pastor here, and, and we're in a, a series uh, on the book of Daniel, and so that's why we're asking you to turn to Daniel chapter 3. I will just say, uh, next week, I would encourage all of us to be here uh, two times a year. We do something we call Partnership Sundays, where we talk about what God is doing in us and through us together in our community and around the world. This is where we highlight our local partners, our local projects, our global partners, our global projects. And it's just a way for us all to get on the same page and where God is taking us. So I encourage you, next week we have a lot of things. We're flying in people from around the world to be here. Uh, So it's going to be a special uh, Sunday. So we're really looking forward to talking about uh, giving you a report of what God's doing in and through Stone Creek Church. Uh, About five, six weeks ago, um, some of you know that I, I like to to do this, but I, I found myself doing, by choice, I, I did an, another endurance run, an ultra marathon, and one of the things that, I don't know why I do this for fun, but I really love it, I, um, <clears throat> I'm a glutton for punishment, I found myself in a race, uh, the eastern uh, states 100, it's in the mountains, the Grand Canyon of the East, in the mountains, the Allegheny Mountains of Pennsylvania. And the race is about 25,000 feet of elevation change up and down over 100 miles, 19 mountain climbs. Sounds like a whole lot of fun, doesn't it? And uh, uh, this one, though, it's, they say it's the hardest race of the East, but I, um, had to, I, I, I chose to drop out at 58 miles. After, watch this, running 19 and a half hours, through eight hours in a thunderstorm with tornado watches. Okay, that was fun. Uh, Three rattlesnakes. Come on, somebody. One bear. Oh, that's no lie. It was right down the hill. I was like, oh, Jesus, help a brother right now. I just ran a little bit faster to make sure that the other guy was behind me. That's all I did on that one. And he had a bad leg. It was his left one. I was going to kick that sucker and just get on going, you know? I hey. I'm a pastor, but I'm going to live, okay? <laughs> and um, and uh, to date, I, I, I'm going to lose about seven toenails is what I've lost over the last uh, few weeks. So it was, it was brutal. And so I get 19 and a half hours in. I'm about 53, 54 miles in. You'd think it would have been the rain. You'd think it would have been the snakes or the bear or the toenails or something crazy that gets you. But in reality, I, I made a miscalculation on my nutrition. And I get down in the bottom of a valley. It's about 12.30 at night, late at night. And um, my calorie intake started to tank. You start feeling all kinds of, of, of uh, chills and everything. I reach into my bag to get food, and there's no food. And so now... Um, I'm stuck. I have, you sign a waiver saying that um, nobody is going to come and get you when you're out there. So it, yeah. You have to take a blanket in case you have to spend the night, a heated blanket. So I literally was looking, I was going to find my blanket. I thought I was just going to spend the night. I, I went from like 10 minute miles, 15 minute miles to 60 minute miles. And it took me about two to three hours to do the next two to three miles. So how many know we done after that? Okay, I'm like, they asked me if I wanted to go on. I still had four minutes before the time cut off, but I said, no, I think I'm done. I got my money's worth today. (laughs) I thought about that in the sense that I was reaching for something. I reached into the bag, and, and I was unprepared for the moment, and I didn't have what I needed. 
And when I read the book of Daniel, time after time it seems that the main characters, Daniel, and then the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, find themselves in critical situations, and it seems they reach within themselves or they reach to the God that they serve. And every moment, it seems, that they find exactly what they need. And this story in Daniel chapter 3 is no different. It was unplanned, it was unannounced, and it seems like it comes out of nowhere. The main character in this chapter is uh, a man by the name, a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of Babylon. And he decides one day that he's going to make a 90-foot statue of himself. I mean, no, there's some uh, ego problems in this man. So I was going to read it, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to paraphrase it over the next two minutes here. But uh, when he makes this image, he makes a decree that he was going to play music. And he invites everybody to come to see the unveiling of the statue. And he says, when I play this music, when you hear the sound of the instruments and the beating of the drums, thousands of people must worship me, my statue. And so what happens is the whole nation seems to be there, but everybody bows down. The image is there. They're playing the music. Everybody bows down except three people. And we know them in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, they were captives. They were Jews in Babylon, and they, with Daniel, had made a pact that they were going to live according to, to their God and to their principles. And one of them was that they could worship no other gods, which would have been foreign to Babylonian culture. But there they stand, and it's reported to King Nebuchadnezzar what's happened, and it says that he grew furious with rage. I think it's interesting. Here's a man who could conquer nations, but he couldn't conquer his anger. And he decides that the penalty is going to be that they're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And they say this phrase. They said, well, king, you got to do what you got to do. Uh, but God is able to deliver us. But even if he's not, uh, we're still going to serve him. We're not going to bow down. We're not going to worship. And he says, well, what God is going to be able to save you from me, he says. He heats it up seven times hotter. He gets the strongest men to bind them with the strongest rope. It's so hot that when they throw them in, they're bound, that the men, the strongest men he could find, they're incinerated in the moment. And, and, and the text says, you can read it later, but it says, when the king started looking around in there, he notices that they're no longer bound, that the ropes that bound them have been burned off, and that they're walking around in there. And I, I just got to think, if anybody had a swag walk in the Bible, it had to be those three. I mean, what you talking about, king? Let's not talk about it now, walking around in the fire. Uh, from a distance, it says Nebuchadnezzar looks in there, and he says, I see the three, but I see a fourth one. And it says, some translation says, the son of the gods or the son of God is walking in there with them. Now he says, hey, uh, I need you all to come out of there. And they come out, and he examines them and says, the clothes were not burned. They had not even the smell of smoke upon them. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar says that uh, these guys are going to be promoted. I'm going to put them in charge of regions. And then he says, and their God is to be revered and not to be spoken against. It is the God of gods. Now, in the story, you're going to see in Nebuchadnezzar, he gets three times where God miraculously reveals himself to him. And this is the second time where Nebuchadnezzar has a miraculous moment 
where God shows himself and tries to turn the heart of this very wicked king, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, when we read this story, uh, I want to say just a few things. Uh, This is a prophetic book, and it's apocalyptic. So that means in the genre of scripture, it's tricky. It means it meant something to the people in that time. It also means that it means something to us in our time, but it also speaks of things that have yet to happen. So the prophetic books, I want you to think of, that seem to orbit the same experience. Think of Isaiah, think of Jeremiah, think of Daniel, think of uh, Ezekiel as well, um, Hosea, and all of these different books that seem to orbit the same experience. And they speak to past, they speak to present, and they also speak to future events. So what I want to do is I want to just go through this story and I want to look at it from past, present, future, what it meant to them, what it means to us, and what it may mean to our future as well. So let's look at, uh, uh, I'm going to summarize my thoughts with one statement on each one of these. Let's look at the past and the, the big truth, I think, what it would have meant to these Jews who Uh, by the hundreds of thousands, if not a million or more, had been carried into captivity was this statement right here, that God is still on the throne. That's what it meant to them, is that God was still on his throne, ruling and reigning. No doubt that this story would have been told because it was very public in nature. It would have been told by Nebuchadnezzar. It would have been told by everybody. So so it didn't probably take long for it to work its way through the whole nation and most certainly into the captives of the Jews from Judah and uh, Israel. And no doubt it would have inspired hope in them and encouraged them. I call this the three musketeers moment in the Bible, all for one and one for all, in the sense that if God can do it for three Hebrew children, three Hebrew young men, then God can do it for us as well. That's what it was saying. If, if they could have defied a king and, and, and who, who himself thought he was God and, and, and thought that he was above all, then God can also set us free and rescue. There is a God still on the throne. Now, a hundred and, about 120 years before the book of Daniel happens, there was an Old Testament prophet uh, called Isaiah. And about 120 years... 722 BC, uh, before Babylon is even really a world power, uh, he speaks to the southern kingdom, Judah, and he says, Babylon is coming. And he says, they are going to take you, overrule you. They're going to take you into captivity. And he warns them for about 11 chapters in the book, 10 chapters in the book of Isaiah. He warns them, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Don't believe the false prophets. Don't believe those things. Their prosperity, don't let it fool you. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And then the first part is warning, but the second half is when it comes, let me give you promises so that you will endure it and you can have hope in the midst of the judgment that's coming upon you. And one of those was Isaiah 43. And no doubt, the people would have known these verses. That's what it says in Isaiah 43, verse 2. It says, when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. 
And no doubt when they hear this story about three Hebrew children walking through the fire and they're not even burned or consumed by the fire, they knew that God's words had been proven true. They had passed through the fire and not been burned. And so if it was true in this instant, then all the other promises that God had spoken were true as well. So Isaiah dies prophesying of things that were to come that he would never see. All he knew is that Babylon was coming. He didn't know who the king of Babylon would be. So when, in Isaiah 14, when he is describing the demise of the nation or of Babylon, he says it will come, but it also will be destroyed. He does what a lot of prophetic books do. You see, in, in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 3, uh, it's historical. There's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There is what we call Nebuchadnezzar, and then their other character is the fourth person in the fire. Those are the three main characters. But in the book of Daniel, they represent different things. They represent, the three Hebrew children represent the church. Nebuchadnezzar represents the devil. And who represents Christ, we're going to find out, is the fourth person in the fire who seems to come out of nowhere. So what does Isaiah do when he describes the fall of the king of Babylon and its impending demise? He uses the fall of the devil to describe the fall of Nebuchadnezzar. Listen to what it says in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 through 14. He says, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn, You've been cast down to the earth, you who, were once, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly on the utmost heights of the mount of Zephon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself into the most high. Now he's using this moment to describe the arrogance, the haughtiness, the pride of the devil in heaven who said five times there that I will ascend to the throne of God and I will be like God myself. Now, why is this important? Let's go back to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar made a 90-foot statue out of pure gold. Now, why is that important? If you remember last week, and if you weren't here, let me catch you up. He has a dream in the middle of the night that he can't interpret. Daniel prays and God gives him the dream. And in the dream, remember the statue had four parts. There was the gold head, then it was silver, then it was bronze, and then it was iron, representing the, the, the kingdom of Babylon, then the kingdom of Persia, then the kingdom of Greece, then the kingdom of Rome. And guess what happens? Nebuchadnezzar hears it, but what's his response? Not to be humbled by it, Instead, he doesn't just want to be the head of gold. He wants to be the whole statue of gold. So this act of building the statue after God's prophetic dream over his life is a declaration against God's decree. I'm not just the head. I am the whole statue of gold. And how about just not building a little one? We're building it 90 feet tall and nine feet wide, people. The arrogance of this. And then he says this. He says, I want you to bow down and I want you to worship me. In this moment, what he's saying is, my kingdom will never end. My kingdom's not going to, I'm not going to die. I will become immortal. There's no end to me. I will become like God myself. 
Doesn't that sound just like what we just read in what the devil does? Is that he will become like God himself. Here you have in both instances a created being saying to its creator, I'm greater than you. It's like the clay saying to the potter after he made it, I formed myself. Who do you think you are? It's an incredibly... Uh, haughty moment here, but it's painting this truth that though you may ascend and thank your God and try to be God, listen, God is still on his throne. Amen. So in the past, that's what it means, but it speaks to us in the present in this way is that the fire on the inside of you must be greater than the furnace before you. You can write that down, tweet that later, whatever you want to do, or exit later, whatever the new thing is. The fire in the side of you must be greater than the furnace before you. And I have a lot to say on this one, but I will just, I'll just speak with time here. Daniel chapter 3, it says this in verse 17 through 18. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. Now, I'm going to do um, something pastoral. This is kind of like uh, a little add-on here, but it's something I think has to be addressed. I love their faith because it says he's able to deliver, but even if not, we're not going to bow. And that speaks to two things. Faith has two sides to it, okay? This is very important. The first is there's always a faith to escape, that somehow God is going to help me to avoid something very difficult, and God can do that. He can help you to avoid cancer. He can heal you before you have to go through the whole process. There's all kinds of things that God can do to help you avoid certain things. He can deliver you. There's faith to escape, and they acknowledge that he's able to deliver us from your hand. But even if he doesn't, we're still going to serve him anyway. There's two sides of faith, faith to escape, watch this, but there's also faith to endure. And that's just as important as having faith to escape. And sometimes the only thing we hear talk about is the faith to escape. But sometimes you're going to get in stuff. And I'll say this, faith is having the ability to accept what I want, but also to receive what God gives. I can accept what I want. I have prayed for it and God gave it to me. Come on. But I also can receive what he gives to me. And we have to marry those two together. I believe he can, but even if he doesn't, I'm staying faithful. I just wonder if sometimes in, in, here in the United States, if we have an enduring faith. It was uh, Mother Teresa in her memoirs in her journal who said this, that the opposite of faith is not fear, it is certainty. And let me speak to, I just want you to say, never say this as a Christian, that somebody died because somebody didn't have enough faith. Now, I'm going to be quiet. Some of you have heard that. And if I just had enough faith, this, would, this, this is going to happen. Or it, that person died because your prayers didn't matter enough and God didn't hear that. Listen, James was beheaded by Herod in the scripture, but Peter was delivered. It's just interesting. We have to accept that sometimes we have to submit our wants and our wills to the mystery of God. I don't know why he did it this way, but I'm going to receive what he gives, and I'm going to stay faithful, even if the outcome isn't what I expect or want it to be. Now, I'm going to say something else. 
Any version of Christianity that is formulaic and says that you can command God to do anything is a heresy and is wrong. You can't command God to do jack, all right? Let me just write that down. You can't. That's, that's in the RSV, Ricky Spindler version of the Bible. Yeah. But I've, just, I've seen it do so much damage when you say things like that. And just be careful. We don't know God's plan sometimes and why he did the way he did. We accept what, we, what, he, what he wants and we receive what, what he wants and we receive what he gives. But here's the thing I think about this. He says, bow down and worship me. We've heard this before and it would be repeated again in Matthew chapter 4 verse 9. He says this, uh, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. Uh, it says the devil takes him up to a mountain and watch this. And it says, he showed them the kingdoms of this world. Some translations say, he showed them in a moment of time. He takes Jesus up and shows him all the kingdoms and dominions of the world. And it says, in a moment of time. And it says, all this I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. I was thinking about that this week. All of this I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. And he showed it to him in a moment of time. You know, the devil, that's what he always will do. Watch this. He will only show you moments. He never shows you outcomes. The devil will only show you the influence, the power, the prestige. He'll only show you the sex. He'll only show you the good. But he never shows you the brokenness. He never shows you the addiction. He never shows you the loneliness. He never shows you the outcome and the carnage and the death and the broken marriages and the broken relationships. He only shows you the moment. But you know, uh, next year, I will have been a Christian for 30 years. That just means I'm getting old is what it means. But let me just say this. The beautiful thing about God, he changes you in a moment, but he shows you uh, what eternity can be over a lifetime. And it's getting sweeter and sweeter and sweeter the longer I'm a Christ follower. But the devil only will show you a moment. You know what? In the life of these three Hebrews, it was only a moment. You think about it. It may have only been five or ten minutes, and it was thousands of people. Who would have even known if they did it? You're young. Why would you put yourself in great peril? Why would you lose your jobs? Why would you do these things just to just bow down and capitulate in the moment? But they refuse to do it. And there's so much pressure to do something in a moment. Now, here's the question I have this week and I'm wrestling with is why is the devil so consumed with worship? Why does he want our worship so much? Why does he want Jesus' worship so much? There are three archangels mentioned in the Bible. The, the uh, first one is Michael. And when Michael comes into the scripture, you'll see it in Daniel 10 and 12. He always comes in answer to prayer, archangel, a leading angel, ruling angel. The Bible says there's three. Michael, who represents prayer. Gabriel comes in Luke 1. Remember, he comes to announce to Mary, you're going to have a child. Come on, I don't want the Gabriel to say anything like that to me. But he comes, he says, I come from the presence of the Lord, and here's what God said. Gabriel represents the word. Every time in Scripture he shows up, it's always declaring what God said. But in the scripture, the third archangel, watch this, is Lucifer. 
And some theologians believe that each one of these were in charge of a third of the angels. That's why they say when devil was cast down, Lucifer was cast down from heaven, a third of all the angels followed him. His name means light. His name meant star. And you know what represents him is worship. And I'll prove it to you. Isaiah 14, 11, it reads as follows. It says this. It says, your, your pomp is brought down to Sheol, meaning to, to hell, and the sound of your stringed instruments. So evidently, the devil was in heaven with stringed instruments leading worship. It says in Ezekiel 28, you were the seal of perfection. You were full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, the topaz, and the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship, watch this, of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. The devil, get this, Lucifer was the worship leader in heaven. That was his job. And then it says in verse 17 in Ezekiel 28, your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendors. So I threw you to the earth and I made a spectacle of you before kings. And the three instruments there, you have the timbrels, the percussion, you have the stringed instruments and you have the pipes for the wind instruments. Now I want you to notice this. He has a picture of beauty and sound. And those are the two instruments that the devil's always using is image and sound. When Nebuchadnezzar comes, what does he do? He builds an image of himself and says, when these six instruments play, when you hear the beating of the drums, you are to bow down. Image and sound. Do you know what marks every generation is its images and its sound? Well, I would say that it's movies and its music. It's image and it's sound. Music, movies, or entertainment industry, I'll say, portrays and perpetuates the plans of the enemy. It portrays godlessness and perpetuates godlessness. So let me just say, be careful what you watch and be careful what you listen to. And some of us need to change our soundtrack. Mm-hmm. In fact, why don't we just play what you were listening to on the way here right now? Just go ahead. I'm just messing with you. But I better move on because it's already 10 o'clock. I better get moving here. But I'm just saying this. The devil's agenda is portrayed and perpetuated through image and sound. But notice that he ordered, in the text, it says he ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual. You know what I've noticed about the devil? is that any time you defy him or the culture he perpetuates, he turns up the heat. Seven times hotter. But I just want to encourage you that when the scripture says that in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. There's going to be a time, and it says in Second Timothy and also in Revelation, a great turning away where the very elect, the chosen, the bride of Christ, the church will Will, will be wooed and deceived. And the primary indicator of that is they will have a cold heart. Their love towards the Lord had grown cold. What I love about this text, it, it, it implies this, is that the fire of their devotion was greater than the fire in that furnace. And the outlines of Michael, the archangel, 
Gabriel, and also Lucifer tell us the three elements for a hot heart. Prayer, a word, and worship. Prayer, the word, and worship. Keep them hot. The scripture says in Psalms that my heart was hot within me. I meditated on your word and it became a fire. Jeremiah would say this, that your, your, your word to me is like a fire that is shut up in my bones. We, now listen, we can have prayer in the word, but we cannot neglect the worship piece because when Christians worship, we're taking the devil's job. We're doing what he cannot do anymore. And where the, where the battle is, watch this, for the church is in the area of worship. How do I know what I'm worshiping, where I put my time, my talent, and my treasure? Watch this. The book of Malachi says this. If you will worship me with the tithe, he says this, I will rebuke the devil, the devourer, on your behalf. <laughs> worship is, is declaring war on the enemy. I don't, come on, you can clap. Right? That's the first time I ever heard anybody clap with tithing. Come on now. We'll be talking about that next week. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter. So let me just encourage you. When the enemy turns up the heat, and he will, that's an indicator to you that you need to turn up the heat of your devotion, your prayer, your word, and your worship. Lastly is this, and I end with this, and this speaks to the time the yet to be, and that is that the answers are in the back of the book. Do you remember that time? Maybe you don't, but I do. When you had homework, and you you had homework, and you would actually they used to do that in school homework. And I remember you'd do your homework, and you had no way to check it till the next day that you came, and realize you'd done it wrong the whole what, whole time. So frustrating. But I, I loved it when they when they finally gave us some math books, and they said, "Hey, just so you know, you can check your work at home now because the answers are in the back of the book." I remember like, I get an answer, I'm like, oh, yes, or oh, man, I was wrong on that. Uh, keep that in mind, because that's the major thought here, is that the answers are in the back of the book. And when it comes here in the book of Daniel, it says that uh, when he, he looked in there, he said, I see four men walking around in the fire. They are unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the Son of God. Now, here's a thought. Here he is, there's looking in there, and two things I can promise you, that when the enemy turns up the heat, when your faith's in the fire, and it's a time of testing, let me tell you two things that Jesus will always do for you. You can write this down. Number one, you will experience new freedom. Their clothes aren't burned. They don't even have the smell of smoke on them, but here it says they're walking around. That means the only thing that burned was the ropes and bondages that were put on them. What Nebuchadnezzar, the devil, tried to put on them, God burned up in the fire. And you, listen, when you go through stuff, God will use the fire of the enemy to purify you and to help you walk in new levels of freedom. There's a second thing, and this is the most precious of all. This is the most beautiful of all. This is called a Christophany. This is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. Notice that you find Jesus right there in the middle of the fire with you, with these three Hebrews. Jesus is walking around in there, and that's the word I'm going to use, not just freedom, but fellowship. He will reveal himself to you 
in ways that you had previously never known him or seen him. You will walk with a closeness and intimacy with him because you're in the middle of something. He will stand in that right there with you. So you may be saying, Pastor Ricky, it's past, it's present. What does it mean for the future? Well, the book of Daniel, when you interpret it, you always got to look in the book of Revelation because Babylon shows up again, but also so does Nebuchadnezzar. It shows up in this word we call Antichrist. You're going to see this that the world is moving to a world stage. It's called the Antichrist is the devil's Messiah. He will have godlike qualities at some point. Uh, there's a part where we'll have to either take the mark and we're not going to take the mark. We will, he will come and he, he will be worshipped and he will become this, this seem like godlike powers and bring peace to the world in a way that it couldn't have been before. And listen to what it says in Revelations chapter seven or 13. It says, the second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that image could speak. It's all metaphoric language here. And cause all who refuse to worship the image to be killed. You know, the devil never changes his playbook. He does it in, in Daniel 3, he did it in Mark 4, here he does it in Revelations chapter 13. There will come a time in the future, who knows when that will be, where it will be bow down and worship me again or die. That will be the cost. So, what do we do with that? Let me just say this. The answers are in the back of the book. Look in the very last chapter of the very last book of the Bible. In fact, the very last almost paragraph of the Bible is Revelation chapter 22. And it says this in verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and I am the bright and I am the morning star. That's the last title given to Jesus in the scripture. I'm the bright and morning star. But you know what's important about that name? That was the devil's name. Isaiah 14, we just read it, verse 12. The morning star has been cast down. And here in Revelation 22, the last title that Jesus gives is not savior, is not healer, is not great physician, the prince of peace, the wonderful counselor. You know what it is? He says, I am the bright and morning star. I love it that Jesus waits all the way to the end of the book to steal the devil's title and name. I just love that. But you know the morning star, what's so precious about the morning star? It shines brightest in the darkest moments. You know the morning star is the brightest star in the sky and shines brightest at the darkest moment. It's like diamonds when you look at them. When do you see them? They don't, when they give you diamonds, they always put them across a black velvet. It's the contrast between the, the, the light and the dark that allows you to see the clarity, color, and cut of the diamond more clearly. And at the end, Jesus said, I'm the morning star. When it gets really dark, here's what I'm going to promise you. You're going to know what's precious. You're going to see me like you've never seen me shining before. And then, at the, you know what it also does, the morning star? It is the dawn of a new day. It, it, it announces that darkness is almost over and that a light has, is coming. The morning is coming. It's a promised future. And in this, the words of Revelation end with this. You ready? Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand as we get ready to close. Yeah, that's good. Clap. A lot dealt with there. 
Because this stuff, this series is, is uh, speaking to us about our past, about the present, and also about the future. And it's really speaking to us about the culture that we find ourselves in. But we always respond with prayer. And I just want you to now humble yourselves, if you don't mind, and put your hands out, palms up in front of you. And I want to make this a matter of prayer. Bible says that, I love this, it says, you are able to, he is able to deliver us. And you may be here and you may be feeling like you're far away from the God and you've never had a relationship with God. Bible says this in Ephesians, that he's able to save to the uttermost. That means he can save the lowest of the low. He can save the farthest of the furthest. You may feel like you're far away from God, but you're not beyond his reach. And you may feel like God couldn't even save me. But I feel like that phrase to you today, more than able, is for you. And if you're here and you need to make Jesus your Lord and Savior, you need to invite him to shine his light in you. You need to move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light today. I want you through your humility. I want you just to humble yourself before the Lord and say, Jesus, save me. Become my morning star. I pray that you will forgive me of my sins. Wash me from my sins. Make me brand new again. If that's you, just humble yourself and pray a saving prayer. But now I'm speaking to those who are already in Christ here this morning. Come on, I just want you just to put your hands out in front of you, and I want you to pray now, church. Would you just ask the Lord that you may sense maybe your, your, your love for the Lord's grown cold or just routine or lukewarm. Would you right now just humble yourself and just ask the Lord, say, Lord, set my heart on fire again for you. Would you do that? Lord, let me have a heart that is on fire for you. Lord, a heart that's hungry for the word, hungry to pray. Lord, and is quick to worship you. In fact, right what you do, you're going to do right now what the devil refuses and unable to do. Would you just in your own words... Just worship the Lord right there, right there. Just thank Jesus for saving you. Just begin to worship and thank him for his goodness on your life. And if you're here and you need, you need him to be delivered from something, come on, just ask them to deliver you right now. By faith, just say, Lord, I ask that you would help me in this situation. But also, if you're in the middle of something, ask him to give you the faith to endure right now. God, help me to stick with this. Help me to have steadfast. Help me to keep walking with you, Lord. Because, Lord, you're the bright and the morning star. In fact, would you just even say that? Lord, you're the morning star. My future's bright. There's a new day coming because of you. And to answer that question that Nebuchadnezzar says, who is able to deliver you from my power? There's only one answer. He is able, Jesus. And with that in mind, come on, let's just, that song that we sing, he is more, God is more than able. Come on, let's just declare that. Lift your hands all the way up if you're willing and able. And let's just declare that over there. We're declaring that our hearts are going to be hot. He is the bright and the morning star. We have a faith that delivers, a faith that endures. Come on, let's just sing that as a declaration if we can.